So, um, ontic structural reasons. <coughs> this is, they propose that all there is to concrete reality, the universe is structure. They face the objection that concrete reality can't be just a matter of structure, because structure, considered just as such, is an entirely abstract, wholly logico-mathematically characterizable phenomenon. And it appears to follow inexorably that for any given structure, S, if it is to be true, that S exists in concrete reality, there must be something T which other than S that exemplifies or instantiates or simply has S and isn't itself just a matter of structure. Yeah, there must be something that concretely realizes S. Given any attempted characterization of the nature of concrete reality, the applicability of the notion of its structural nature seems to demand the applicability of the notion of its non-structural nature, if it's ever going to get to be concrete. Well, ontic structural realists haven't shied away, at least, at least two of them haven't shied away from making what seems to be the only possible reply to this objection. Lady, Van and Ross, they're clear. They quote, we reject the dichotomy between the abstract and the concrete. Um, the, the substantival and the structural. But I, well, this is pretty cool, clearly. But I can't really understand what it would be to hold a position that involves the rejection of the dichotomy between the abstract and the concrete. So, if the dichotomy between the structural and the substantive is understood in such a way that it lines up fully with the dichotomy between the abstract and the concrete, as Leyden and Ross seem to suggest, then I can no more reject the dichotomy between the structural and the substantival than I can reject the dichotomy between the abstract and the concrete. But when I think further about the relation, so it's a bit autobiographical, I didn't mean to be, when I think further about the relation between the substantive and the structural, I'm not so sure I can keep the two things clearly apart. I still don't believe that an inability to keep them apart could ever oblige me to question the distinction between the abstract and the concrete, but I do feel increasingly unsure what to say about the relation between stuff and structure when it comes to the question of the ultimate nature of concrete reality, given the apparently universal applicability of notions of structure to concrete reality. Well, that's some, something we might talk about. Well, here's a simple first example. If you consider a haystack catching fire, this allows many possible types of cause. A match, a bolt of lightning, a cigarette end, a flamethrower, or spontaneous combustion. But if we now describe the event of the haystacks catching fire, this is a sort of very simple toy example. If we now describe it more carefully, specifying the exact nature of the initial moment of combustion in greater and greater detail, the number of types of things that can be the cause of just this type of effect is going to dwindle very rapidly. In principle, we can expect to reach a level of precision of description of the effect which only one type of cause can have precisely that effect. So that's the, the model for now consider a concrete entity X. Remembering that a purely structural description of something is only a wholly, always a wholly logico-mathematically expressible description, applicable in principle to distinct concrete entities that are quite radically different from each other, although, although they're also in some way topologically or otherwise formally or structurally identical or homomorphic. So an initial high-level description of this X may be it's a one-foot cube. In fact, this is a sort of dodgy bit, this description of X isn't purely structural, purely abstract structural, insofar as it's explicitly spatial. 
And insofar as we take ourselves to have some sort of more than merely structural notion of the nature of space, um, the best way I find best to put this is to say that a purely structural, wholly logico-mathematically expressible characterization of space just leaves out the spatiality of space. So that's the case, but it's still a very high-level description. It leaves open a very large number of possibilities. The one bit cube may be made out of butter or chocolate or lead or whatever. Uh, I'm going to assume, I don't know what comes next. I'm going to assume that the world is spatio-temporal, where to say this is to say something that goes beyond the merely structural description of reality. I think that's, for those who know this stuff, I think that's was New Max Newman's point against Russell. But I'm going to take spatio-temporal to be a natural kind term that denotes the actual dimensionality of the world, whatever the ultimate nature of that dimensionality. So it's going to denote, even if we're very wrong about its nature. So this is an example I like. If Lee Smolin is right in his, in his suggestion that the actual dimensionality of the universe, of the concrete real, is an eight-dimensional phase space, which I don't understand, but it's, he's, it's a merger of space-time and momentum space. If he's right, then that's what I mean by space-time. So we have X, the one-foot cube, and it may be made out of butter or lead. Now, however, we go on to describe the structural characteristics of X in more detail. And you'll notice that I'm very much more interested in, as it were, going inwards on what we normally think of as a particular object rather than thinking of larger structures in the universe. So as we go inwards, we very rapidly reduce the number of things it can be made out of. Butter, chocolate, and lead we may suppose are quickly ruled out. The process of increasingly detailed structural description of X exactly matches the process of increasingly detailed description of the event of the haystacks catching fire. So we soon get down to the molecular level of structural description, assuming that X's constitution is uniform throughout at the molecular level. We already have strong reason to think that X can only be made out of one kind of stuff. Silver, say. We may not yet be able to distinguish different isotopes of the same elements, but now we pass beyond the molecular level to the wholly atomic and then subatomic level. Now we focus on one particular moment of time. We consider the most detailed structural description of the concrete reality that consists of X of T that's available to us given our best scientific investigative techniques. Now we pass beyond this to an ideally complete structural description of X at T. This is the description in God's own physics textbook, as it were. And what do we find? I think we, yeah, I think that we may suppose that we reach a level of precision of description of structure, given which, and given the actual dimensionality of the world, X at T can't be made out of anything other than exactly the kinds of <coughs> ultimates. I use ultimate, just my, that's my word for what some people call simples, whatever the fundamental items are. It can't be made out of anything other than exactly the kinds of ultimates. It is, in fact, made out of arranged in exactly the way in which they are arranged. And I don't think anything in quantum mechanics puts this supposition in question. And to suppose this, as far as I can see, is to suppose that we reach a level of description of structure of X at T, given which the structural description completely fixes the ultimate nature of X at T, given that we're in the universe that we are in fact in, and made of the stuff it is in fact made of, with the dimensionality that it actually has. Even though we're still supposing the ultimate nature to be something at least partly non-structural. 
But I think, in other words, that we may suppose that the ideally precise description of the structure of X not only and trivially fixes the structural nature of X, but also completely fixes the non-structural nature of the substance of X in all its details, so that it can't possibly be anything other than what it is. A question arises about whether one could fully know the structural nature of X and yet not also know the non-structural nature of X. So, well, the initially expected answer is, of course, yes, because structure, once again, structure as such is something essentially abstract. Hence, something that can, in principle, always be multiply realized. Something that can always be extracted away from, known apart from any concrete realization. Even so, one may wonder what exactly is left to know about any concrete phenomenon like a one-foot cube, when one knows absolutely all there is to know about its structure, all the way down, say, to the, the Planck length and time, and given that one is in the universe, one is in fact in, made of the stuff it is in fact made of. And one may wonder whether this isn't part of the ontic structural realist point. At the very least, it seems plausible that in this universe, with this stuff and dimensionality, only one kind of thing can possibly exemplify precisely this structure, specified as it is down to the point length and time. But even if this is true, well, first, it's not clear what implications this has for knowledge. Even when structure completely fixes non-structural nature in a given world, there still seems to be no good reason to think that complete knowledge of structure, that is, complete structural knowledge of structure, <laughs> entails complete knowledge of non-structural nature. Even if one thing fixes another, it seems that we may, one may know the nature of the first and not know the nature of the second. Second, the qualification given that we're in the universe we're in, with the spatial-temporal dimensionality that it actually has, seems important. It introduces constraints on structure that aren't really purely structural, as far as I understand it. Now, of course, I'm good. I really am way out of my depth when it comes to anything to do with physics. Um, it, it introduces constraints on structure that aren't purely structural, given that structure is understood to be wholly logico-mathematical. And again, I think that's what Newman pointed out to Russell. And Russell wrote this letter to him saying he was rather ashamed that he hadn't noticed. Well, I'll return to this. I think I will. But now I'll note that I'm continuing to take it that the distinction between the structural and the non-structural nature of concrete phenomena holds up even at the furthest or ideal point of knowledge, while trying to introduce the idea that this might come into question. I'm continuing to take it that we can talk validly of the structure realizing stuff of reality in a way that implies that the stuff is in some way irreducibly structure transcendent. And how could this not be right? If all our knowledge of the stuff and the dimensionality of concrete reality is purely structural knowledge, then on the present terms and again it's purely mathematically expressible. If so, it must leave out something, must leave something still to know. Sorry, I really am not coherent. Um, maybe I'll just fill up the screen. <clears throat> About the nature of concrete reality, it must leave out an account of the structure transcending nature. There must be something structure transcending, we think, because there must be something structure realizing. In particular, what's still left to know must be unknowable by physics, given the sense, which I think is widely accepted, again, as it was once before, the sense in which it's true to say that physics deals only in structural, numerical structural relational information. 
In fact, this point, in fact, seems as uncontroversial as the familiar counsel. So there'll always be a sense in which we can never fully know the nature of any concrete entity X, for example, the one for Q, as it is in itself. Um, and I'm happy to defend that, the propriety of that phrase, if anybody thinks that it's dodgy. As it is in itself, we can never fully know the nature, simply because we can only ever have access to an appearance of X, an appearance that's necessarily a function not only of how X is in itself, but also of how X affects us, given how we are in ourselves. And this, in turn, seems no more troubling than the well-known point about the sense in which we can never observe the nature of cause and power, or natural necessity, in our scientific inspection of reality, although it obviously exists, well, that's my view, we can never observe it because all we can ever possibly observe is regularity of succession. So that now seems rather banal. Can I miss this now? So back now to the proposal that structure yeah, fixes. Oh, argument coming. Structure fixes non-structural nature, at least in our world. Can this be so? Lewisians may be highly dubious. So let me try a simple argument. <coughs> I have to say that I'm kind of dead against Lewis. In case anyone's very keen on him. Say it now. <laughs> <laughs> so, we here's the argument for what it's worth. One, we inhabit a spatiotemporal world. A world that essentially has, as we may say, a certain concretely realized metric through and through. With all that that entails about logical and mathematical describability and structural describability. So it's arguable, for example, that since any substantial difference, by which I simply mean a real concrete difference in nature, must involve, or indeed simply be, a difference of spatio-temporal arrangement or organization, whatever else it is or isn't, or does or doesn't involve, it must be a logically, logico-mathematically characterizable difference. Why is that? Because space-time, we suppose, is essentially amenable to structural description in such a way that spatio-temporal difference entails difference in structural description. So now we have substantial difference entails spatio-temporal difference entails structural difference. Any substantial difference entails some spatio-temporal difference, which entails, in turn, some structural difference. If so, there can't be root differences of quality that don't show up under perfect structural description of reality. I mean, I don't suppose that Lewis ever thought that there could be in our world. It may be added that some leading present-day physicists and cosmologists are what I call thing monists as opposed to stuff monists. That is, they think there's only one thing, and they think that space-time is the only concrete entity there is. So here's one version of that view from Stephen Weinberg. The fund, according to him, the fundam fundamental entities currently recognized in the standard model are, I quote, modes of vibration of tiny one-dimensional rips in space-time known as strings. And I take it that rips in space-time are not ontologically over and above space-time itself. So really this is just, actually this is just Descartes. So Descartes vindicated. I mean, it, it, he did think there was more than one thing because he thought there were souls. But you can probably know that when it comes to the material world, he thought there was only one thing. So if this is so, if a, what, what am I saying is so? If that space-time is the only concrete entity there is, I do, and I think that's a very serious contender then all concrete phenomena are wholly spatio-temporal phenomena, 
and that means that all concrete differences are wholly spatio-temporal differences. And if I'm right that all spatio-temporal differences must be structural differences, then all concrete differences must be structural, structurally describable differences, whatever else they are or are not. Well, one doesn't depend on that idea of opaque. Let me get on with the argument. Let me just comment on one. So, take any structural description of a concretely realizable, so therefore, an abstract structure type, S, that allows for the possibility that two different kinds of concrete stuff, F stuff and G stuff, can concretely realize S. Could be a bagel made of wheat and a bagel made of rye. Suppose that we have before us an F stuff realized particular concrete realization of S, call it S1, and a G stuff realized particular concrete realization of S, called S2. In this case, there, given the nature of our world, there must be a possible description D of S1 and S2 at a finer level of description, a spatio-temporal description, which may also involve other elements which reveals the difference between S stuff and G stuff. And in so doing, we will necessarily for F1 and S2 to have different structure. Couldn't there uh, be two irreducibly different kinds of concrete stuff, F stuff and G stuff, that weren't structurally different in any way at all? Not if one is true, so it seems to me. In an essentially through and through spatiotemporal and hence essentially concretely metricated world like ours, at least it seems again that any real concrete difference between two kinds of stuff must involve some sort of spatio-temporal difference between them, which must therefore also be structural difference. At the very least, the constituent ultimates of the two kinds of stuff will be differently arranged or vibrating differently. And note the difference of vibration, that's a sort of leaving an in for string theory, which again I don't understand. Difference of vibration is simply a form of difference of arrangement in a through-and-through space-time world like ours. Because there's no respectable sense in which arrangement is a merely spatial and non-temporal matter in such a world. More generally, and this is going to be something I'm going to develop, a concrete entity's behavior isn't something distinct from its overall arrangement or structure. A point I'll develop further, and I think it can be seen that it may be anti-Lewisian. So, as before, I intend to be talking about a concrete phenomenon, the actual concretely existent overall arrangement of concrete reality, including, of course, its dimensionality in talking about the structure of concrete reality. It may again be said that to mean this by the structure of concrete reality is to mean something that goes essentially beyond anything that can be fully conveyed by any, conveyed in or by the true, complete, holy, logical, mathematical, structural description of concrete reality. And that's true. A complete, purely logical, mathematical description may correctly represent the metric of space-time and the arrangement of all the stuff of reality in space-time, if indeed this stuff is something over and above space-time, which may well be doubted. And it may, so, so, here we have again the purely logical mathematical thing. We can obviously take it to be about and genuinely refer to real space-time, but it still can't ever hope to capture or express the spatio-temporality of space-time in any way at all, as already remarked, or the nature of the stuff in space-time, if this is something over and above space-time. 
And the same holds of a purely logico-mathematical description of the causal structure of the world, which may not be different from its spatio-temporal structure. So, by the structure of concrete reality, I mean more than everything that's expressed in the true, complete, wholly logical, mathematical structural description of concrete reality, even when this is thought of as referring to the real world. <clears throat> I mean actual, concretely existing structure in the totality of its being, which cannot, it seems, be conveyed by any purely structural description, however godlike in its completeness. Well, the, I, the, the current line of thought must bring me into familiar metaphysical territory, I suppose, but I'm not, I'm kind of ignorant of the territory, because the basic metaphysical principle behind it is very simple. Every difference makes a difference. If two things are really intrinsically different in some way, this difference must be characterizable in some way. That's easy. Um, it must show up at some level of description. It must, in other words, be manifest in some way. <coughs> Call that the difference principle. The difference principle couples with the assumption that in a spatio-temporal world like ours, every difference must be susceptible of a structural description, i.e. a description under which it shows up as is a structural difference. Are there possible worlds, non-spatio-temporal worlds, say, in which things that are made of different kinds of stuff, say F stuff and G stuff, can fit the same abstract structural description even when described in the finest possible way, so that there is some true description of F stuff and G stuff that reveals the difference between Fness and genus, but leaves absolutely everything about the structure the same, even on the terms of God's physics? Well, I just don't think we have good reason to believe that this is possible. It's just a, <laughs> a real concrete difference of nature or quality or kind strictly entails a describable difference. And it's arguable that any describable difference is correctly characterizable as a structural difference according to some viable notion of structure. Here's a sort of cheap argument. <clears throat> Given that F and G are qualitatively different by hypothesis, it follows trivially that they occupy different positions in some real state space, which is to say, the suggestion goes, that they occupy different positions in some structure, some state, some state space structure. And if that's right, there can't be, there can be no such thing as concrete difference that's non-structural difference, not real concrete difference that involves no structural difference. I think this is certainly so in our world, as far as we know given its through-and-through through spatio-temporal nature, and maybe so in any possible world. And this, perhaps, is part of what Max Newman did have in mind when he said, and I quote, that it seems necessary, not here maybe, sorry, seems necessary to give up the structure-quality division of knowledge in its strict form. An objector says, no, it may be... The concrete things that differ in kind or quality not only may, but must differ structurally, but they may and must also differ non-structurally in some wholly non-structural way. The potential reply, well, it seems that this allegedly non-structural difference must also be amenable to structural description, at least. Reply to that, no, yes, but it is for all that still a non-structural difference, even though it has a structural description. Well, I feel some sympathy with this, but now some autobiography. I'm back at the position I was in 10 years ago, actually 15 years ago when I wrote this, but 
<coughs> this book was delayed for five years because it was a professorship for Chomsky, and he was so busy saving the world that he took five years to write his reply. <coughs> so, I'm not sure, this is me, I'm not sure that the distinction between structure and quality is clear or fundamental in such a way that it holds all the way down. Structure is certainly a matter of quality, because a thing's qualitative character exhaustively considered is a matter of all aspects of how it is, and its structural character is an aspect of how it is. The converse claim that quality in space-time is in some sense a matter of structure sounds a bit mystical, but it can on further reflection begin to seem hard to rebut. Even when one maintains, as one would must, a sharp distinction between epistemology and metaphysics. Um, well, I don't think I've made, really made any progress <laughs> since I wrote this. Might it lead someone to say, in an ontic structural realist way, that in the end we might find nothing but structure? Seems as clear as ever that this can never be so. At least not as long as we continue to take structure, structure as such, to be something that's fully logico-mathematically characterizable. Unless we join Lady Man and Ross, and, I quote, reject the dichotomy between the abstract and the concrete. I'm kind of oscillating, I realize, between <coughs> using structure to mean the purely abstract thing and the idea that it's essentially concretely instantiated thing. Okay, so I'm sort of wondering whether, and in some I don't, I can't remember the context in which Newman said that, but it seems that somehow something seems attractive about it, given these difficulties. Well, perhaps this is another case of philosophy in which we appear to be locked into deep natural habits of thought and we find it almost impossible to shake off, and that lead us when, and perhaps only when, we start to philosophize into what appear to be hopelessly inadequate, maybe even antinomous views of the nature of reality. I do think this happens when we pursue the distinction between objects and properties. So I agree with Ramsey when, speaking of the traditional distinction between objects and properties, or particulars and universal, he famously says that the whole theory of universals and particulars is due to mistaking a characteristic of language, what I would put discursive thought in place of language, for a fundamental characteristic of reality. I'll leave out the bit where I agree with Nietzsche. <coughs> no, well, I'll tell you. I agree with Nietzsche when he writes, I quote, that language is built in terms of the most naive prejudices. We read disharmonies and problems into things because we think only in the form of language. Um, thus, believing in the eternal truth of reason, e.g., this is still Nietzsche, subject, predicate, etc. Got more than that. Uh, I sometimes wonder whether we could adapt Ramsey's remark to the present case as follows. Um, the whole theory according to which there are on the one hand structural properties and on the other hand irreducibly non-structural qualitative properties is due to mistaking the characteristic of language or thought for a fundamental characteristic of reality. But, while I'm confident that there's a sense in which the object-property distinction is metaphysically superficial, and I think we can sufficiently see this to be so in philosophy, albeit with considerable difficulty, I still don't see how this could really be so in the case of the structural, non-structural distinction. Um, well, let me get back to X. I think we've been here before. The concrete entity I introduced earlier, considered at a moment or period of time, T. As we describe X at T in greater and greater structural detail, we reach a fineness of description of which X can't be made out of anything other than the precise types of ultimates it is in fact made out of. In precisely 
the type of arrangement therein. When the level of detail is perfect, uh, the structural description of X during any period of time won't permit the constituent ultimates to be in anything other than the precise state of activation they're really they're actually in at that time. In the case of an essentially spatio-temporal entity like X, its concrete structure isn't separate from its state of total state of activation. So one might call its total state of activation during any period of time its internal or core behavior, or I'm going to call it C behavior. So X's C behavior is the totality of the behavior of its constituent ultimates, whatever influences they're subject to, whether these influences are internal to it or external to it. As we pursue these descriptions, we may again have a sense that we can't keep any aspect of the intrinsic nature of a concrete entity apart from considerations that concern its concrete structure. Certainly we need to be clear that concrete structure is an essentially dynamic phenomenon in our world. That behavior is structure. That C behavior is structure, structure in time. All concrete structure is structure in time. Um, whether we're thinking about, of course that's as much true on a sort of 3D view as a 4D view. Whether we're thinking about structural or non-structural characterizations of the nature of X, we can't think well about X's nature, I claim, until we eliminate any trace of two bad styles of metaphysical thinking. Staticism and separatism. These are my old enemies. But these, these are details, relatively speaking. What remains is the idea that at bottom, at the level of full omniscient description, um, I mean, I hope you allow that I can help myself to that idea. Uh, structure supervenes on intrinsic nature. You can't possibly have just that intrinsic nature without having just that structure. Actually, the converse claim seems no less plausible. In any given law-governed world, intrinsic nature supervenes on structure. That may just be wrong, but we shall see. Given just that structure, you can't have a different intrinsic nature. Some may say that there is or may be no bottom to things. Oh, I'm going to miss out this bit, because it's where I say that there can't be concrete infinities. So I think I agree with Aristotle. Do I? You sound very so. close, yes. Yeah, yeah, good. Yes. I also think this gives an a priori proof that the world must be quantal in nature. But I'll leave that out too. Returning to our world, it's no good saying that ultimates in our world may be point particles, hence, stru hence structurally indistinguishable, and yet different in substantial nature. Nothing spatiotemporal and concretely real can exist in a zero volume of space-time. Nothing can't add up to something, whatever measure theory says. Uh, even if we allow that treating the ultimates as point particles is more than a theoretical convenience, which a lot of people don't, we can't say that they're therefore structurally indistinguishable in being point particles. Because if they're different kinds of particles, then what one might call their interactivity fields are essentially different, and that means that they are essentially spatio-temporally different, and that means that they are structurally different. These differences are part of their fundamental nature <coughs> and suffice for their structural distinguishability as real existence. So someone now will say, this won't work. For all you know, group differences in intrinsic nature may exist below or below any and all facts about structure. Perhaps the phenomena we call electrons come in seven different smells that are objectively, behaviorally indistinguishable indistinguishable in respect of causal profile, functionally indistinguishable 
in absolutely all respects. Well, I'm told that there are <coughs> positions in modern analytic metaphysics which allow the idea that there could be a difference in intrinsic nature between two things, X and Y, with zero behavioral difference between them, either in some world or in any possible world. <coughs> this idea simply rejects the view that every difference makes a difference. As far as I can see, however, there's a lot of assertion going on right now. It depends on an indefensible form of separatism, what I call being-behavior separatism. I think that all one has to do in order to see that it's untenable is to hold on to the point that being, being is also already behavior. That the behavior of a thing is part of, essentially constitutive of the being of a thing, that everything is behavioral in its fundamental categorical being, and that behavior is already structure. And this will link to anyone who likes the view that you know, the, the, there's no fundamental distinction that as it were the categorical properties and the power properties of things, which is something else also think is true. Uh, it's important not to fall into thinking of the behavior of a thing only in terms of how it affects other things, thereby ignoring its internal sea behavior. But I think that the point holds even if one does. So on this view, a difference in intrinsic nature not only entails difference of internal sea behavior in any temporal world, or indeed in any world that has a dimension that allows for something correctly called behavior. And of course the present argument is only concerned with such worlds, because the issue is some people are saying there could be a difference in intrinsic nature with no difference in behavior effects. Difference in intrinsic nature not only entails difference in internal sea behavior in any world that has a dimension that allows for something correctly called behavior, and hence difference of structure also, I claim, entails difference of behavioral disposition with respect to other entities in some possible situation. And might, you could put, try and put this point more vividly by saying that X and Y must be differently made, arranged, or disposed in some respect in order to be different, if they are by hypothesis, and that this difference must make some difference to how they affect other things if those other things get close enough, whatever closeness amounts to in the dimensionality they exist in. So I'm just rejecting the idea that that's some sort of an argument that you can have, you can, wasn't it swap hate, hate cities or something? Well, Swapping. Swaps, no, not actually, it's quiddities, actually. Okay, on, on this general view, to say that every difference makes a difference is not in the end to say anything more than that every real difference is a real difference. The indefensible, indefensible separatism is already manifested in the eye that is different can come apart from makes a difference. It's not just that behavioral disposition is an essential part of intrinsic nature, although I think that's plainly true. It's a separatist mistake to think that one can hold a thing's intrinsic nature apart from its actual sea behavior or intrinsic dispositions to behavior in any way. It's also that no part of intrinsic nature can be supposed to be separate from behavioral disposition. So that's a bit like saying you can't think that there's anything categorical that doesn't, isn't implicated in the thing's power properties. I think otherwise is again indefensible separatism. So well, I, I realize there's a kind of 
it seemed like I was trying against ontic structural realists, because this is a point, as I understand it, against Lewisians, not against ontic structural realists, who probably wouldn't welcome the idea that the Lewisians might try to come to their aid. Let me try to rephrase it. It isn't enough for me to say that the seven different putative smells of electrons must, in being genuinely different, necessarily be amenable to different logical and mathematical descriptions. Simply insofar as it's built into the thought experiment, that they must be correctly describable as occupying different positions in some state space. That's kind of boring. Uh, but I think the more substantive reply remains. The claim that real, concrete difference of nature or kind or quality entails difference of structure, if only because it entails difference of behavior in any world in which there is behavior at all, and that difference of behavior is already difference of structure, given a properly non-separatist conception of a, a thing in space-time, or, or in a world in which there's behavior. And so also entails difference of dispositions to behavior. I don't think this can be challenged by ungrounded appeal to the notion of possible brute non-structural difference of nature or kind or quality, which I take it is what's going on in, in the Lewisian picture. So in our world, at least, and as I've already remarked, genuine objective difference entails structural difference. Um, <clears throat> if only because genuine difference of substantial nature entails difference of spatial temporal organization, which entails difference of structure. So, but part of the present point is that it's not clear that the point must rest on some assumption like the assumption of characterizability in spatio-temporal terms. The, the completely general question arises, how could real difference not be structural difference at some valid <coughs> level of characterization in any world? Well, here perhaps we're at the end of argument, and this happens in philosophy. It's not always a sign of failure when it does. So as far as I can see, this anti-separatist, anti-staticist view falls nicely into line with the position adopted by Shoemaker in causality and properties. But if that's right, then it is by the same token incompatible with Ramsey's humility, as defined by Lewis, or rather with arguments Lewis offers in support of Ramsey's humility. It's equally incompatible with Kantian humility, as defined by Langton, incorrectly, so far as the reference to Kant is concerned. It's also incompatible with Lewisian combinatorialism. Oh, right. Compatible with Humean supervenience, as defined by Lewis, incorrectly, in my view, so far as the word human is concerned. And with Lewisian quiddityism, the idea that you can switch spatial and temporal instantiations to different intrinsic properties, F1 and F2, replacing all instantiations of one by the other and vice versa without changing the way the world behaves. It seems to me that this last view fails the robust sense of reality test. That's Russell's test. Uh, okay, I'm going to finish just by some stuff by Jackson. <coughs> I'm really talking way beyond what I really know about. So. Um, let me finish by considering a quotation from Frank Jackson. When physicists tell us about the properties they take to be fundamental, Jackson writes, they tell us about what these properties do. This is no accident. We know about what things are like, essentially through the way they impinge on us and on our measuring instruments. It doesn't follow from this that the fundamental properties of current physics or of completed physics 
causal common relational ones, it may be that our terms for the fundamental properties pick out the properties they do via the causal relations the properties enter into, but that at least some of the properties so picked out are intrinsic. This, he says, suggests the possibility that there are two quite different intrinsic properties, P and P star, which are exactly alike in the causal relations they enter into. Sometimes one is possessed and sometimes the other. And three, we mistakenly think that there is just one property because the difference doesn't make a difference. And, he goes on, an obvious extension of this possibility leads to the uncomfortable idea that we may know next to nothing about the intrinsic nature of our world. We know only its uh, causal correlational nature. He wants to block that. So he says one way to block this result is to deny. To deny one. Unfortunately, one is gone. Um, to that is, to deny that there can be distinct properties with identical causal profiles. If they have identical causal profiles, they are one and the same property. And then he cites Schumacher. This, however, worries him in a different way. And he ends by saying that this is too, cl uh, this is too close to holding that pipe the nature of everything is relational come causal, which makes a mystery of what it is that stands in the causal relation. So you just so here's someone nice and clear talking about the things that I've been trying to talk about. That's why we're looking at it. Uh, I'll come back to five after um, a brief comment on one, and then no, and I'll discuss four after a brief comment on one. So. The denial of one, that there could be distinct properties with identical causal profiles, seems to me plainly right, independently of any wish to block anything. Right with regard to any universe in which there's such a thing as behavior at all, and hence such a thing as causation at all. Actually, no. I take them to be linked. I don't that could be questioned. Um, there is, however, no need to feel uncomfortable about it, as Jackson does, or about the idea that we may know next to nothing about the intrinsic nature of our world. Given here that the intrinsic nature of the world is here being understood as wholly non-experiential. Uh, but this under understanding of intrinsic is wrong, certainly wrong. Um, and I've got four points to make about four. Should have put four up. What was four? <coughs> four was we may know not, next to nothing about the gap. There it is, because I've done the so first, the inference is mistaken because the structural nature of the world is part of the intrinsic nature of the world. But I'm going to put that point aside because I think it's merely terminological. Jackson has adopted Russell's arguably natural, if unhelpful, use of intrinsic to mean non-structural. Um, and the point, the point in reply is that if you give a, anything that's structural about a thing must be part of its intrinsic nature, especially when you look inside. Um, two. It, I think it is indeed the case that we may know next to nothing about the intrinsic nature of the world so far as the world's non-experiential nature is concerned. But this is so, it seems, for old and familiar reasons which I only called Kantian, which were later made vivid by Poincaré and Eddington, among others, and which can be equally well expressed by saying that physics is simply silent on this matter. And I take that there's no cause to worry about this familiar fact. Third, well, the path to four does 
depend on the view that the world has some non-experiential nature. And here I'm going to say something vaguely pentelated. Uh, this is or should be a controversial view. Why? Because there is no evidence for the existence of non-experiential nature. There is zero evidence for the existence of anything non-experiential. And this point about claim 4 is true a fortiori when it comes to what I think of as an astonishing view that the whole world is incomposed. Oh, stop. I run out. When it comes to views that the world has wholly non-experiential nature. So this is the, the view that um, consciousness reduces in the sense, in the sense that me is ultimately limited to consciousness. Falsely and connectedly, or is false because, yeah, we know the world has some experiential nature, and its experiential nature is part of its intrinsic nature, and we know quite a lot about experiential nature according to me and other real realists about consciousness. Um, finally, Jackson worried. Yeah, let, finally, let me return to Jackson's claims of denying one, denying the possibility that there could be two different intrinsic properties doing this down, exactly alike in the causal relations they into, is too close to holding that the nature of everything is relational concausal, which he says makes a mystery of what it is that stands in the causal relations. Uh, well, I just think that's a mistake. <laughs> There's no such connection between denying the possibility of one, that is, that there could be two different intrinsic properties that are exactly alike in the causal relation they enter to. And five, holding that the nature of everything is relational and causal, which makes a mystery of what it is that stands in the causal relation. The denial of the possibility of one stands on its own, because I think an overwhelmingly natural metaphysical view about our world without in any way undercutting the idea that things have intrinsic features in virtue of which they behave and so relate as they do. The thing otherwise is just to give epistemology too much work in one's metaphysics. Um, <laughs> in sum, difference of kind or quality or nature is different. That's sound enough. Real difference with all that entails. Every real difference must make a real difference. All being is making slash doing. One can't separate being from making, doing, behaving. Final thought. Surely the idea of totally causally inert concrete existence is coherent human science. Well, I don't think so, not in what I tendentiously call real metaphysics. Um, here's a testy idea. If the idea of causally, if the idea of totally causally inert concrete existence is coherent, then it must be a real possibility that something may exist in a universe in such a way that However, all the other things in the universe are arranged or rearranged compatibly with the laws of the universe, that universe will continue just as it would if the things didn't exist at all, and that, I think, cannot be. So, that's the end. <laughs>